0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Hard to Believe, answering common objections to Christianity. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. I'm going to try and show you that at its core, Christianity is one of the most humble, inclusive, loving, peace-promoting worldviews ever given. And I want to try to do that through uh, a couple passages of Scripture, a couple texts this morning. We're going to look at the, the preaching of Peter uh, in the book of Acts. We're going to look at two separate passages there. Uh, and then we're going to get to the end and kind of I want to show you kind of a litmus test of how to, how to know if a belief system is true. How to know if, if a belief system should be followed or not. But before we get into all that, let me, let me slow us down this morning. Let me pray over us. And then we'll dig into what uh, Scripture has to say, and we'll look at some cultural things today and see what that has to say. But let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you've, um, that you've woken us up and brought us here this morning. God, inevitably, every single one of us had neighbors last night who uh, didn't know how to follow the fireworks rules. And we were up later than we wanted to be or kept our kids up, and that kept us up. And uh, God, as we come in, uh, some of us here are tired. Some of us maybe worked all night. Some of us had things going on in life that uh, just required some extra attention. And, and God, we are, we are weary. We are tired. We're in need of, of grace this morning. We're in need of uh, the Spirit to kind of revive us and renew us this morning so we can hear your word preached. God, for those of us that aren't in that boat, maybe we came in this morning and life is good. Life is going well. God, would you help us to hear a message this morning of, of inclusivity that you have called us in in order to call others in. So as we're doing well, it's not just for for our benefit of doing well, it's for us to uh, draw attention to you and bring others to you. And and God, may we do that humbly and thoughtfully. And this morning, God, as we walk through this, may my words be your words. Would you block out anything that's written on these pages that that isn't of you? And would you help us to get a better grasp of uh, why there is only one way to God this morning? We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. If you've got a Bible this morning, I'm going to ask that you would grab it and turn over to the book of Acts, chapter four. That's in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under your chair. Uh, if you'd like to use it, uh, excuse me, look it up on your phone. You are more than free and able to do that. Uh, you can use the U version app or whatever app you choose on there, um, and, and we'll get there. But Acts chapter four is where we're going to start this morning. We're going to spend uh, a good a bit of time here, so I would suggest grabbing that, bookmarking it, or uh, maybe even at least writing it down so you can go back to it. And a little bit of history of what's going on is. Um, the, the apostles are in Rome, and what's happened is they've healed uh, a beggar. So Jesus has been uh, uh, crucified, buried, died, rose again, and now has ascended back into heaven. And the disciples have gone out, and they're living out what Christ told them to do, to go and preach the gospel. And as they come into Rome, uh, they heal this man. And as others around see it, as the Roman officials see it, they're not really happy with what they've seen. And we're going to break down a little bit of what's going on here. Acts chapter four, let's start in verse one, and we'll probably read to about uh, verse 12 or so somewhere around there, okay? It says, "And as they were speaking to the people and the priests excuse me, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead." And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men came about came to about 5,000. On the next day the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were in the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, verse 9, if we are being examined today concerning the good deeds done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed let it be known to you or excuse me to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead by him this man is standing before you well this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders which had had become excuse me the builders which has become The cornerstone, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So this statement right here in verse 12 is the statement that gets Peter and the apostles in trouble. Peter was actually really good up until this point until Peter says there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. You see, it would have been fine with everybody if Peter had said, Jesus is our way, Jesus is our God, and you have yours. But that's not what Peter said. What got the apostles in trouble was their claim that Jesus was the only way. Peter says there, no other name under heaven. Heaven. You see, the problem with Peter's statement to the people that he's speaking to is that Rome had a society that was built on pluralism, or what we would call secularism. You see, Rome had conquered the world, and all the peoples uh, they conquered had their own gods. So the way that Rome saw it, everybody could have their own god, but each god was limited to that group of people. So the Ephesians could have their gods. The Egyptians could have their gods. The Jews had a god, and and that could be their god. And they were allowed to do that. And all these people were allowed to have those those gods. And some gods weren't just geographical, but they were restricted even to certain uh, dimensions of life, like fertility or traveling or uh, war or any number of other things. And Rome was totally cool with that. Rome was absolutely 100% fine with it. But... Roman historians tell us that one thing that no one was allowed to do was to say that their God was superior to all the others, that their God was supreme. And that's exactly what Peter does as he comes on the scene here. Now, Rome's rule or their rule of thinking was there was two reasons why people couldn't do that. So one reason is because uh, once people claimed that their God was the supreme God, it would follow that that people should be supreme. And then two, once a group of people claimed that they had the supreme God, claiming themselves to be uh, uh, supreme, then that would make them go to war with other nations in order to, to show their dominance, to show their supremacy. So Rome's thinking is, you can have what you want as long as you don't claim superiority. You can do what you'd like. So what Rome did was they tried to ensure peace by letting everybody worship their own God, but allowing no one to claim that their God was supreme. In fact, if you've ever uh, maybe looked around Rome, they had this building called the Pantheon and the Pantheon housed all the gods. So inside of the, the Pantheon, well, let me tell you what the outside of the Pantheon looked like before. On the outside of the Pantheon, there's an emblem of Caesar who stood on top of it kind of looking over or controlling or maybe even kind of domineering what was going on. And underneath of that, though, all the other gods got along harmoniously, kind of living in their own little room. They had their own little boxes, so to speak. And basically the message of that building was, to each his his own as long as you acknowledge that you're in Caesar's universe. And this is what pluralism does. Pluralism dangerously muddies the waters about God and the way of salvation. Pluralism says all of these things can work, right? All of these things can get you there. And that really muddies the water about who God is and the, the true way of salvation. And this is the world that Christianity was born into. For a long time, our world has been a very pluralistic place. It's not a new thing. It's not something that's just popped up in the last few years. For, for hundreds, if not thousands of years, people and societies have believed that there is good in every religion and we should be open to multiple paths to God. And we, we see it right here. So in the midst of all that, Rome's problem with the apostles had nothing to do with the fact that they wanted to worship Jesus. Because to them, Jesus was just another God. Jesus was just another way. The problem that Rome has is the apostles' insistence that Jesus was the only way. Remember, he said, no other name under heaven. In fact, it got to a point in Rome that in the first century, the emperor uh, Severus decided that the Christians had been persecuted for far too long, and he wanted them to finally have a seat at the table. So he had a statue of Jesus made and actually put it in the Pantheon. But to his surprise, the Christians were actually outraged by it and demanded that Jesus be taken out of the Pantheon, that he not be put in there. And they knew that he could never be just one among the gods, right? They knew that Jesus had no place in the Pantheon. They knew that he couldn't be just one among many. And they really, they, they were outraged by it. Like imagine being this, this emperor and be like, okay, cool. You guys, you guys can have Jesus in here. And then and you would think that they'd all be like, yeah, finally, we're making headway. Right? You see this happen with Christians today, right? Like, yes, finally a Christian athlete, finally a, a Christian governor. Right? And we just, we get on board with it. But the Christians were like, no, 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 no. We don't want to do that. We're not going to muddy the water anymore. He doesn't belong in there. And the point of saying all that is to show that pluralism is not a new thing. When the apostles claimed that Jesus was the only way, it was a direct challenge to the prevailing pluralistic worldview then. And it still is today. It still is today. Just, I didn't have this in the notes, but just recently uh, uh, our, our president appointed someone um, that... that uh, uh, I'll just name names. Okay, so Bernie Sanders had a problem with one of the uh, people that, that President Trump appointed. And what happened was uh, this guy had been a a professor at Wheaton College up in Chicago, and while he was there, a staff member had been removed because she made a kind of sympathetic remarks toward uh, another religious group, and, and this lady uh, found herself without a job, and, and uh, the guy that Trump uh, approved had kind of written an article that kind of saying why they removed her and why it was right for them to remove her, and uh, when, when President Trump appointed him to this office, Bernie Sanders came in and said that he was uh, an Islamophobe Right, that he couldn't be uh, in, in office because he, this lady had made comments about uh, being sympathetic toward Muslims and she was removed, and, and now Bernie Sanders was saying, well, he can't be in office because he's an Islamophobe. And, and really what Bernie Sanders was saying is you're, you're narrow, you are uh, too strict, you are too rigid, and you can't be in office. And really what Bernie Sanders was doing was saying that I know what's right and you are not right, and therefore you can't be in office. And he was really doing the same thing that, that the guy had done when he removed the lady from her spot at her job. And uh, it's really interesting. You could research that, and probably uh, somebody put it way more eloquently than I did. But this is still going on in our time. It's not new, uh, and it's probably not going to go away. So let's look real quick at what Rome did, okay? Okay. Rome really tried to do the same thing that that you just heard that, that I tried to tell you about the, the Bernie Sanders incident there. Rome tried to quiet the believers. Right? So go back to Acts chapter 4 and let's look at verses 18 through 20. Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. It said, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Okay? So they tried to hush them. You can do what you want privately, but it will not come out in the public realm, right? It will not come out as you're in the streets. It will not come out as you are in your job. It will not be spoken here. Okay, verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Listen to this: for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak. Of what we have seen and heard. Now, I want to hang on to that last verse, verse 20, there, and, and kind of dive into another point of, of contention. Because one of the things people say about claiming that there's only one way to God is that it's arrogant. Like if you believe that your way is the only way, that you have some kind of superior knowledge or some type of superior vantage point uh, to everyone else. But I want you to notice what Peter is saying here. Peter's not saying, I know this because I'm smarter than you or because I have some kind of superior knowledge. What Peter is saying is, I'm telling you what I've seen and what I've heard. Peter's not saying, I am so much smarter than you that you have to listen to me. I've been way more educated than you, so you have to listen to me. You see, you can call what Peter said a lot of things here, but arrogance is not, is not one of them. In fact, the people watching the scene even realized this. Look back up to verse 13. So remember in verse 12, he said, There's no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Even as Peter is preaching and, or really just kind of having a conversation with them, Peter's not being arrogant with them, and they recognize it. They're kind of saying to each other here, hey, he's not being a jerk about this. He's just telling us what he's seen. He's just telling us what he knows because they perceived he was uneducated and common. Basically, they're saying that you, they, he had not been like educated as a lawyer, and he was arguing a point. He's just telling them what he's seen. Almost as if like when you come into a room with a child and a child just begins to speak to you and they begin to kind of give you facts and you're like, how can this child know all these things? They haven't gone to college. They haven't been through this, this education courses that, that need to be gone through for people to say this. You just, you'd look at them and say, wow, this, is, this kid really knows a lot. He's really been paying attention. He's just maybe uneducated and common, but he knows what he's talking about. He's, he's, he's done his research. But there's kind of a common thought from people today that if we're humble, like Peter was here, then we'll realize that none of us is smart enough to know everything. So the humble thing to do is to recognize that everybody has a perspective that's at least equal to ours. And it's only when we listen to everybody's perspective that we'll get the full picture. I've heard it described this way before. Maybe, maybe you have too. There were three blind men And they were in a room, and they were asked to describe an elephant. And each one of those blind men walked up to the elephant and touched it, but they touched it at different parts. So the first blind man walked up and touched the trunk and said, the elephant is like a snake. And the second man walked up to the body of the elephant, and he said, the elephant is like a wall. And then another walked up and touched the tusks of the elephant and said, the elephant is like a spear. See, the moral of the story goes to say that that Uh, No one blind man has the whole picture, so they should all be open to what the others added to the picture. Each of them was right in what they saw, but each of them was wrong to argue what they saw was the whole thing. Now, that sounds good, but if you take a religious stance on that, which is what's being taken place here, what this story is teaching is that no one religion has the full picture. So we should be open to other religions because only then we'll get close to the actual truth. But Leslie Newbegin said that he heard this parable many times when he was a missionary to India until he finally realized this. In order to tell the story, you had to see the whole elephant. In order to know what these blind men were seeing was not the whole truth, you would have had to see the whole elephant. You see, the only way to claim that each blind man only saw part of the elephant was if you were not blind and you could see the whole thing. The only way you would know would be to have an outside perspective. And in that, you would be claiming to be able to do the very thing that you're telling everybody else they cannot do. To claim that all religions are right, you have to claim that you have a superior vantage point to each of the religions. That's why you can say each one of them doesn't have the full point, doesn't have full picture. Recently, a dean at Stanford University forced a group of students to stop proselytizing others on campus. And as he went out to talk to these students, he told them, you shouldn't be telling people their religion is wrong. Basically, he was telling this group of students, I can see the whole elephant and all these religions are equal. And that's why I'm telling you to stop doing what you're doing because it's wrong. Think about what he's doing. He is telling them he was doing the very thing that he was refusing to let them do. He's saying, I know the right way. So you can't tell anybody that your way is the right way because my ways the right way. But contrast all that here to Acts chapter 4. Peter is not saying he has some superior vantage point. Peter is saying, look, I don't know, I don't think these things, I don't know these things because I think I'm superior to you. I'm just a fisherman from Galilee. But picture kind of Peter talking to these men He's saying, I don't don't know these things because I think I'm superior. I'm just a fisherman from Galilee, but a guy raised from the dead and told us what the deal was, and I believed him. I walked with him. I talked with him. I was next to him. I saw what he did, and I believe him. I believe him. See, that's not arrogance. That's taking Jesus at his word. And really, that's a decision that you have to make. Is Jesus who he claimed to be? And again, you could claim that's arrogant, but let me give you a couple practical, let me give us a couple practical examples of, of how this kind of plays out in everyday life. Because we want to say, well, that's that's arrogant to say that your way is the right way or your way is the only way. Okay? So most of us in the room have probably flown before, right? You've got on an airplane and, and the flight attendants do that great speech every time you get on the plane, right? Tray tables up, seat belts fastened, and then they walk through like, here's how you connect your seatbelt, right? Here's how you put on the life preserver. Here's how you put on the mask when it drops from overhead. And you get all those things. And then they go on to tell you that there's, a, there's an exit row here over this wing and here over this wing and maybe at the back and at the front. But imagine in the midst of that situation, you said, you know what? I'd prefer to go out right here what? Like she just got done telling you, here's the exit row. Here's where you get out. Here's the path to get there. And you'd say, hey, you know what? I'd prefer to go out here. The flight attendant would probably say to you, fine, you can call your row an exit row, but you didn't build the plane. And if we crash and this plane catches on fire and you try to go out there, it's probably not going to work for you. Would you call her arrogant? Like No, she is simply telling you the, def- the facts of how the plane was designed and the best way for you to get out of it. Really, she's telling you the only way to get out of it alive. You exit here because this is how the plane was designed. Along those same lines, it's not arrogant for the pilot of that plane to insist that he land with the wheels down. Really, he's just believing that the people who built the planes and the runways know how to best land it. He's not insisting upon going about it his own way. Like he didn't watch the movie Sully and be like, you know what, I think we can land this thing on the water. No, he's saying it was designed in such a way to be landed this way. And there's no way you and I would go into him and say, you should try another way. You should really try another way. Maybe the designers of this plane were wrong and you can land it belly down. No, it was designed to land That way. So again, I would suggest that believing what Jesus said is not arrogant. It's actually one of the most humbling things to say. It's actually one of the humblest truths because it's saying, I'm not smarter than you. I'm not better than you. It's not even saying I have a better vantage point than you. It's just saying, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and I'm going to take him at his word. He's telling me how it's been designed and I'm taking him at his word. You see, Peter's insistence that Jesus is the only name under heaven by which we can be saved also confronts other things we hear a lot, that religion is just a matter of personal preference. See, this view assumes that, well, all religions say the same things, love people and be good, and you'll get to your desired destination spot. You see, this view assumes, though, that, that they all have the same destination in mind. And it says that whatever you believe specifically is up to be up to you whether that's Jesus or Allah or Buddha or your cat, it's all the same and it's a private matter. It's a private matter. But that's very different than what Peter says. Peter here is saying it has nothing to do with what I would prefer or what works for me. It has to do with what God says and how God says we get to him. Peter's not making it a matter of personal preference. If you remember, when, when the guards came to take Jesus away, how did Peter respond? Like rips out his sword and chops off ears, right? Like he goes nuts. Like Peter didn't prefer it to go this way. Peter didn't want it to go this way. But Jesus spoke to him and said, no, it's going this way. He says, this is the only way it can go. See, this isn't Peter's preference. Peter didn't want it to go down this way. Years ago, there was a guy named Immanuel Kant. And he said that religions are subjectively helpful, but none of them are objectively true. What he was saying is there's two kinds of facts. There's objective facts and there's subjective facts. So objective facts, I know you all wanted to go back to the classroom this morning. Okay? For example, if you were in a classroom today and the teacher asked you, what is the capital of Illinois? And you were to blurt out, Chicago. Your teacher would say, no, it's Springfield. And you would look at her and say, well, Chicago has a higher population, and they have the bean. It's a better city. That's the capital. And while saying that, you're, you're very passionate about it, but does it make it true? No. You're, you're still wrong. Ch- Chicago's a fun city, great city. I like it a lot, too, but it's not the capital Just because you believe it should be or because you want it to be, you're still wrong. See, that's an objective truth. That's a truth that's not based on opinion or preference. It's just the truth. Now, the other side is subjective truth. For instance, I think it's hot in here this morning. But for some of you, sitting in your chair, you're thinking, no, it's cold. And you tell me, I'm wrong. What's happening is you're thrusting your definition of cold on me, And see, that's, that's kind of wrong, right? To tell me I'm wrong because that's a debatable point, whether it's cold or whether it's hot. That's subjective. It's something that's maybe yet to be proven. And Kant said that religion was that second kind of knowledge, that it's subjective. And therefore, it should be a private thing. The question really that Kant was saying is, is what works for you. He was saying all religions are subjectively helpful, but none are objectively true helpful, but not true. This is secularism. Secularism uses the fear of man and saying that religions are oppressive and shouldn't be taken too seriously. So it's really pitting you against your fears of being kind of liked and trusted and known by others and saying, hey, if you tell that person they're wrong, then they're going to shut you out. They're not going to listen to you anymore. They're going to they're turn you off. It's going to ruin the relationship. You shouldn't take that too seriously. You shouldn't become a fanatic. It's saying you should pick kind of the good parts out and use those when that benefits you, but the bad parts, like, you know, th- those aren't helpful and you shouldn't do that. But, but I really wonder, like, can you really do that? Can you really just take the good parts of something and not the bad, like imagine if I said to you this morning, you know, Hitler was really smart. He just kind of got off track with that whole like killing the Jews thing. Like nobody would agree with that, right? Like nobody would go home and kind of Google, like, was Hitler smart? Like we would look at him and say, no. We we cannot take what was good from that. He was wrong in what he did. And really, as we look at other faiths, there are things like that as well, and it's not necessarily my job this morning to look at all the other faiths and, and show you all their weaknesses and show you where they break down and show you all those things, and, and we could do that, but I don't necessarily know that that's fair. This is not like a build-up-a-straw-man argument and show you kind of all their weak things and then, and then like kind of surprise you with Jesus at the end of it. That, that's not the goal. That's not what we're trying to do, but we would be amiss if we didn't kind of evaluate what Kant was saying, that that... Religions are subjectively helpful, but not objectively true. There are things about some of these other religions that are not subjectively good, that are not helpful at all. And once you take a closer look at some of these other religions, it would seem impossible to even make that claim. For instance, the Hindu uh, practice. They have temple prostitutes for male devotees to sleep with. And what they've uh, called these, these prostitutes, these women and girls, is they've called them prostitutes of God. So the way they serve God, the way that they get to God or love God or devote themselves to God is through being a temple prostitute. Like, as I hear that, having a daughter, nothing about that sounds even subjectively helpful. For people to say that there are good things found within that religion seems really, really hard. Those of you that have sisters and moms, that seems really hard to say that your mom or your sister or your daughter could be in that place. But, you know, there's some good things we could take away from it. Maybe that's just me. Others, in Malaysia, the Islamic practice is to perform what they call female circumcision on young ladies in which the female genitalia is mutilated to prevent females from actually enjoying the act of sex. And recently there was news stories that came out of Michigan just a few years back that documented the same practice taking place here in the States with young girls being tricked to go on kind of retreats and then they would be met with doctors and nurses that would perform this act on them. And as I hear that, that doesn't sound subjectively helpful. It doesn't sound true or good. And it seems hard to say, yeah, but there's some good things in the midst of that. Like, no, this religion practices that. A news documentary just recently was talking about kind of Islamic practices, and uh, one one of the Islamic practices is actually... I don't know how to term it any better than really it's kind of male, it's a male-dominated religion. So females are not really looked highly upon in in this in Islamic practice. And and when asked, the statistics were something crazy. Like 60-70% of men had had claimed that they had beaten their wife at one time or another because she hadn't been submitting to him or listening to him. And that's common practice. That's actually a taught practice within the, within the religion. It's not that somebody came along and added something crazy to their teaching. It's in the teaching. It's there that, that men should do that in order to keep their wives in order. And as I look at that, I think, can I look at that religion and say, yeah, but other than that, there's a lot of good things. You see, that, that's really hard. And, and that's kind of where that argument breaks down that, that all religions are good and kind of lead to the same place because there's a lot of gaps and there's a lot of holes. And again, I don't want to build up a straw man argument before you and, and kind of build these religions up and, and shoot holes in them and say, you should never believe a thing like that. You should also do your homework about our religion, about, about Christianity, about what it has to say and do your homework on that. Because there are a lot of people that will say things about Christianity and, and maybe they're, they're basing that off scripture. And I think we could probably do a good job of showing where people have taken God's word in error and use that against people. But, but these teachings that I was telling you about are specifically in those religions like book of teaching. It's not that somebody got errant and made it up. It's in their book of teaching. You know, to be honest, I think, and I want to say this carefully, I think that part of the reason people don't like to entertain the idea that there might be one right way is because if there is one right way, then they themselves have to submit to it. And really, if there is one right way, I don't want to be told what what to do, so I kind of hide behind this all religions are equal kind of message because I don't want to submit to anything. And that way I can decide what I want to do and where I want to go with life rather than submitting to one way. But before we get on kind of some high horse about secularism being wrong, I want to ask, are secularists the only people that are doing this? That are saying, that, that, that are kind of isolating people and kind of labeling people into some type of fanatical uh, group what about the moral or religious person? What about the person who goes to church every single week and lives up to the right moral code or the right moral standards? See, the moralist says, do good and God will love you. If you just follow the rules, God will love you. These may be some of your neighbors too. Some of the people that drive you crazy too. And Peter was actually confronted with this also. So here in Acts 4, he's, com- he's uh, confronted with kind of the pluralist, secularist mindset. Flip over to Acts chapter 10. Peter's going to be confronted with the other side of the coin, the religious side of the coin, the moralist side of things. Flip over to Acts chapter 10, and let's read verses 1 through 8 here this morning. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. I have no idea what that means, but that's who he is. He's a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, "Your prayers and your alms have ascend- ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who had attended him, and having related, relayed excuse me, related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. so We find this man named Cornelius and he fears God. He gives alms generously and he prays, but he has a vision and a man standing in front of him before him and he says, go find Peter. So Peter can tell you what he has to say. So these men, they go out and they find Peter and Peter has just had kind of a wild dream. You can read about that, but Peter goes with them. But this is really, really interesting because Peter is not supposed to meet with Cornelius according to his religion. Peter and Cornelius should not be together according to their religious standards. Jump down to Acts 10 verse 28. So Peter has gone with the men. He's gone to meet with Cornelius and he says this in verse 28. And he said to them, you yourselves know How unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Stop there. What separated Peter from Cornelius is his religion. His moral standard has separated him from having a conversation with Cornelius. These two men are not supposed to be associating with each other. Peter's a Jew. Cornelius is a Gentile. And because of Peter's religious system, he cannot be with this man. You see, religion has a way of doing this. Religion has a way uh, of separating people. Religion breaks people down into good guys and bad guys. And good guys just don't associate with bad guys. Right? Because they're good guys. And these other people are, well, bad guys. You see, Peter's religion has created a pride in being the one the ones with truth, and has isolated everyone else who has not. Do you see how religion comes in and does that? Peter's former religion comes in and says, we shouldn't be associating. We don't have anything in common. You see, religion has a way of doing that. This is one of the problems with religion. Another problem Is this religion can oftentimes convince us that we are a good guy, though? Go back to Acts chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Listen, Cornelius is doing everything he can to be a good dude. But in the midst of Cornelius being a good dude, he still wasn't good enough. He was doing the right things. Devout, fearing God, giving alms, praying. But there was something missing from Cornelius' relationship with God. And that's why Peter had Come, That's why he needed Peter. See, left to his own devices, Cornelius' religion helps him to feel great about himself. He actually does really good things. He's actually a really good guy. But at the end of the day, he's just religious. You see, this is where secularism and religion both fail. Instead of unity, they both bring division. So as we sit here this morning, we have to ask, what's the solution. So, if, not, if, if all roads don't lead to God, and religion causes uh, division, causes us to feel like we're a good person when we're not a good person, what's the solution? Those of you that have been around Sacred City know long enough to know where we're going. The solution is the gospel. The solution is the gospel. See, most people on both the secularist and religious side of the aisle would assume that because Cornelius here is a good person, that he's distinguished from other people, that that makes him better than other people, so he he, he does not need to be saved. But the gospel says there has only ever been one good man, and his name is Jesus. It goes on to say that your morality is not what makes you acceptable to God because when your heart is exposed, God sees that we're all sinners and you are in fact not a good man or woman. You see, the gospel doesn't come to reward morality or secularism. You see, the gospel doesn't come to say, you've been a good boy or you've been a good girl. And the gospel doesn't come in to say, you were really good in the way you took the good things from all those different religions and, and now you made it to me. The gospel doesn't say that. And, and I kind of said that sounding condescending and, and I didn't mean for that to come across that way, but I want you to hear that that's not the gospel. The gospel doesn't come in to, to pat us on the back. You see, none of us will get to God because we've distinguished ourselves. It's because of what Christ does for us. Because of Christ living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died. Listen to what happens here. Cornelius is a good guy, right? But jump to, still in Acts chapter 10, look to verses 44 through 46. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. when, when the Spirit comes, Cornelius is now praising God. We actually don't hear any more about what a good guy Cornelius was or is. Now he's praising God because of who God is and what God has done for him. You see, the story was never about Cornelius and the story was never about Peter. The story was about what God has done to set both parties free see, Cornelius, in his goodness, may have thought he was good. And Peter, in his past religion, may have thought he was good because of who he was in his religion. But God comes in and breaks both of those walls down. You see, in the gospel, no person can ever proudly distinguish himself from others and praise themselves. You see, the gospel doesn't allow you to separate the good and the bad. It says that all people, even those, even those of us that think we are good, are actually sinful and in desperate need of God's grace. You see, both secularism and moralism are both systems, and, and, and this is how they usually work. They both set up a standard and say, if you live a certain way and you keep the commandments or you, or you live a proper life, then you're approved by God. You see, the good people are in and the bad people are out. And so if you look at yourself and say, because I have good morals or because I have better insight or because I'm, I'm better dis- disciplined, then I'm better than others and I'm welcomed in. But the gospel says, no, you are a sinful person in need of a savior. And well-meaning people say, well, I just don't think you have to believe in Jesus to be saved. All good people can find God in their own way. But listen to that. If only good people find God, who doesn't find him then? If only good people find God, then who doesn't find him? And just to be honest with you this morning, one f- for me, if only good people find God, then I'm never going to find him. Because I know my heart. And I know it's not good. And if you were to honestly assess yourself this morning, you'd have to say the same thing. You know the thoughts that come out of your heart. You know the, the, the things that you do that you don't want to do that comes out of you. And you know deep down that you are not good. You could try to, to put on a face or an act, or but you know you're not good. If you were good, you wouldn't struggle With that thing you struggle with so bad. If you were good, you wouldn't think that thought about that girl at work. If you were good, you wouldn't feel that way about your neighbor. If you were good, you wouldn't keep desiring that thing that keeps ruining you. You see, when you you set up a standard, some are in and some are out, that's not the gospel. You see, when the gospel came here in Acts chapter ten, it didn't produce division; it destroyed it. No longer would any race, culture, background, or or morality distinguish people. As we see it here, all were welcomed in. I love verse verse forty five. All the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter. So people came with Peter, like some of his boys were like, "Yeah, man, we'll go down there with you." And as they see it, they're amazed. None of them jumps in and says, whoa, 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 Peter, Peter, stop. This can't happen. These people, they're not like us. They're not not good like us. They don't follow the rules like us. But no, 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 they stop and it says, they were amazed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They saw God's inclusivity. They saw that now no one was, was kept outside looking in anymore. You see, when this was written, the Greeks and the Romans wouldn't mix the rich and the poor, but the Christians did. The Romans and the Jews wouldn't mix races, but the Christians did. You see, the gospel produced the most inclusive community the world had ever known. And it was all because they had been so loved by God. There was nothing else. There was, it had nothing to do with how Cornelius acted here and all the things that he did. It was all about what God had done for him. Peter simply came to preach Jesus. And When he heard Jesus, he worshiped in a way that he had not before. You see, the ultimate reality for Christians is a man on the cross loving people who don't love him or who didn't love him. Giving himself for people who didn't agree with him. And in doing that, God created the most Listen to this. God created the most inclusive, exclusive family ever. God created the most inclusive, exclusive family ever. In church, that's why this place should look different. That's why this place should be filled with diversity. In this room, we should have together the morally upstanding person and the moral failure. We should have the red, yellow, black, and white that the old Sunday school song sang of, right? They are all precious in his sight, all united, praising God because it doesn't matter what kind of sinners we were, but because of the kind of Savior he is. He welcomes us in. And really, this is the thing that, separate, that that sets Christianity apart as the only way. Every other religion says it's up to you to get yourself to God. And Christianity says, no, God has already come to you. Take him at his word. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do anything for it. It was freely given. We read this morning uh, in our scripture reading a text that we haven't come to yet. And I'm going to ask that we turn there now because there's a litmus test of faith or belief that you and I maybe should could better adhere to. And, and we want to see that the litmus test of, of belief or faith is whether a belief system, whether a faith system creates love and inclusion inclusion or does it create barriers so when it comes to a faith system, a belief system does it is it inclusive or does it create barriers? So if you still have your Bible, turn over to first John chapter four we're going to end uh, here in this passage this morning because I want I don't want to just give you a bunch of things this morning and you leave here like that was good, but having no system to be able to say, why is that good? Why is the gospel right? Why is the gospel true? Why is the gospel the only way? So turn to 1 John chapter 4. Again, the litmus test that we're looking for here is, does this system of belief create love and inclusion or does it create barriers? In, in 1 John chapter 4, Verses 1-12, through John gives us a good working system on how to test religion. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So, the first three verses there says, Don't believe every spirit. So, don't just accept every religious viewpoint. Don't blindly accept the message of every person or every religion that claims to have truth. This, listen, this goes for Christianity as well. Listen. This is one of those things about Scripture that if I was writing Scripture, I wouldn't put this here because it's it's saying, put it to the test and see if it does these things. Put it to the test. Test the spirits. Put all the claims to the test. Let's keep going. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. Verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, how do we go about putting into practice the things from verses 1 through 6? Because that sounds good and it sounds nice, but it also sounds very Christian-like, right? We are the only ones with truth, right? Like if we know if it's from God. If people don't listen, well, they just don't know God. Like that's one of those things that if we just read those verses, we'd be like, yeah, told you so. And that's not the point of what's going on here in 1 John 4. Look at, at the, the test here in verses seven and eight. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So as we go back and we look at these other belief systems that we kind of talked about this morning, this is the test. If they are in excuse me, if they are inclusive and create love for one another, we have better proof that it is from God, But if it builds up barriers between people, if it causes you to look down on other people, then it's not from God. You could even say this morning, as you look at your Christianity, if it's excluding people from it, that may not be true Christianity. Because true Christianity comes from God. It says, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So this religious system that you may be following, if it is not causing you to love, it's not from God. That's why I said what I said about the Hindu thing with the the temple prostitutes and the Malaysian Islamic practice of, of genital mutilation. That's not creating love. That's separating and causing division and saying some people are worthy of love and other people need to be mutilated and treated as less. That's not loving. That's not loving. If your belief system ever causes you to feel superior, if your belief system causes you to feel accepted because you're smarter or more moral, then it isn't the gospel. Let's read the rest, verses 9 through 12, because this is the gospel. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Listen, that's the gospel. None of that was about your work or your effort or your good deeds or your, uh, your way of making all things work toward good. It was all about God's work for you. God loved us and made a way to include us through the death of Jesus. And by accepting that truth, it doesn't make us superior. It makes us lovers of people. Because we recognize that we were once those that were without God. And now we go with the exclusive message of inclusion. Do you hear that? It is an exclusive message of inclusion. No one else has this message of, uh, message of inclusion based on God's work rather than their own work, and that's good news. And then the last thought for today, I just want to leave us with a question since we're in a, a series that generates questions. Maybe you're here today and you're still tempted to write off Jesus as one of many ways. Let me ask you this final question, and I, really, I want all of us to kind of think about it. If there truly are a lot of different ways, then why the cross? Why the cross? Why would Jesus have undergone a torturous, shameful death if there were multiple ways to God? Why the cross? You see, no other religious system has a Savior who died for them, who freely gave himself for them. The death and the resurrection shows us that Jesus has the authority to tell us what's going on out there. The cross shows us that we can trust him. And this morning, I invite you to trust Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning, as we've walked through this, I pray that this has made sense. I pray that as we As we see the truth of the gospel played out through just the the, kind of the preaching ministry of Peter here that we see that in the midst of a secular, pluralistic society that Peter still made the claim of truth because he had been with you. He had seen you. He saw that that Jesus' death on the cross was inclusive. God, and then when Peter's confronted with his past religion and the religion of the people of his time, He recognized that Jesus died for more than just good people, that Jesus died for all people. God, this morning, I pray that as we hear that truth, that it would begin to break down maybe walls and barriers that we've built up in our life, that that maybe some of the questions that we've been asking, we can now put in a better perspective, we can look at through a different lens. God, as we look at other religions around the world, may we use this kind of litmus test. to: If if, if it doesn't create love and it doesn't create inclusion, then it's not gospel. It's not something that's inclusive. It's not good. God, today you know our hearts, you know our desires, you know our passions, and I pray that for the people in the room here this morning that are really seeking truth, really seeking to know you, that you would begin to work on our spirit, that you would work on our mind, and you'd help us to be open-minded about this. That you would help us to be uh, man and woman enough to really explore and search your ways, to really dive into Scripture and see what it has to say. And God, may we find you at the end end of that loving us, coming for us, desiring to be with us. God, today as we take communion, it's just another picture of the inclusivity of you and your word and your son. God, as we take the broken body of Christ today, we recognize that that body had to be broken for us. And God, as we take the cup this morning, may we recognize that your blood had to be shed to cover our badness, to wash away our sin. In taking the bread and the cup this morning, God, we're recognizing that it was, this was not, it is not our effort that makes us right with you, but it's Jesus' effort on our behalf that brings us in. So God, today as we take and eat, May we be reminded and may we enjoy the inclusivity of your word and your gospel. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.